0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1. As you can see from the bulletin, I originally planned on getting into the Song of Hannah, but then realized that's not going to happen tonight. So, but we sang the Song of Hannah tonight, and it works out great that we did because the Song of Hannah is really part of our story tonight, so you've already had a chance to hear it and sing it. Uh, but hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel, chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not grow up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Why, Samuel? There's, there's two, two parts to that question. Uh, why preach on the book of Samuel at this time? Uh, in the morning service, we've been going through book one of the Psalms, and I've been suggesting that book one of the Psalms presupposes the king sitting on the throne. Most of the Psalms in book one are Psalms of David. The picture is of the Davidic king sitting on the throne. So it's useful to go through the books of Samuel and Kings to catch a glimpse of what that world looked like. What is meant as the Psalms are talking about the king sitting on the throne and yet things not being the way they should be and we're not the way we should be. Well, that's Samuel Kings for you. But not only that, Samuel and Kings reveal to us God's patience with his people. God is far more patient with us than we are with one another. We'll learn a lot about sin and repentance. We'll learn from Saul and David about what a king ought to be and ought not to be. (laughs) And we'll see the faithfulness of God from age to age as we see our Lord Jesus Christ revealed in these pages. But there's also a second question, why Samuel? And that's the main focus of tonight's sermon, Why did God raise up Samuel? Who is this Samuel and what's he doing here and why is he such an important character in the scriptures? Uh, Samuel comes after the period of the judges or in another sense, Samuel is the last of the judges. He is the hinge of history between the era of the judges and the era of the kings. Uh, The book of Judges ended with the refrain, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samuel will conclude the era of the judges by appointing a king. In fact, he'll appoint two kings. King Saul will do what is right in his own eyes, just like the people. But then King David will do what is right in God's eyes. Samuel is referred to three times in the New Testament. In Acts 3, he is spoken of as the first of the prophets... In Acts 13, Samuel is seen as the transition between the judges and the prophets. And then in Hebrews 11, it speaks of Samuel and the prophets. So he's, he's portrayed as being, in a sense, the first of the prophets and the last of the judges. He's a hinge in that sense. He's a prophet. He's a priest. I, I say that because he's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not a Levite. And yet he's going to be offering sacrifices all all through. How how does that work? And while he's not a king, he is a judge. And so of all the characters in the Old Testament, perhaps Moses and Samuel would be the two who most reflect prophet, priest, and king uh, in different ways. But he prefigures Christ in some interesting ways. Now, the first thing we're told is that there was a, a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now, Ramathaim Zophim is usually just called Rama later on. Uh, we'll hear that Samuel lives there after the death of Eli. And Elkanah has two wives. In other words, he's a bigamist. And actually, Elkanah reminds us of another bigamist, more famous bigamist, who was also in a similar situation because Jacob had two wives. One whom he loved, who was barren, and the other one whom he didn't love so much, who had lots of children, Leah. So Panina echoes Leah with her children and also with some of the tormenting, while Hannah reminds us of Rachel, whose womb also was closed by the Lord, so that's that language is used of Rachel and now of Hannah. But Elkanah was a faithful worshiper of Yahweh. That did happen in those days. I mean, after going through the book of Judges, you might be surprised to hear that there are still faithful worshipers of Yahweh in the land. But he comes to, the, he comes to worship year by year at the feast. It's like, really? That still happened? Yes, there were some who did come. And the 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 book of Judges reminds us of the the downward spiral of Israel under the judges and if you might you'd be excused if you thought after reading Judges that there was nobody left worshiping the Lord, but in fact the book of Samuel points out that even in the latter days of the judges, even when Israel is apostate in so many ways, there was a faithful remnant. There were those who remained true to the word of the Lord and Elkanah was one who would go up year by year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of at Shiloh. And this reminds us that in the Old Testament, worship was not something you did every week. For the faithful, they would go up at least yearly, the, the idea was that three times in the year you were supposed to go up and worship the lord, and in practice uh, it was generally if you went up once a year and it, not everybody would go to the same feast, but if you got up if you if you got there once a year you were doing you were doing well and and that 's where he would, When he comes to worship, he would sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. You cannot worship God without a sacrifice. And you cannot offer sacrifices except at the place where God commands. And in order to offer sacrifices, you need a priest. And the priest at this time was Eli and his sons Hophni and Phineas. Uh, we'll hear more about them later. Uh, but the way the story is worded, there's some foreshadowing here. And you're, there's, it's, there's a little, a little bit of perhaps even ominous foreshadowing here. It's sort of, like, it's almost as though the author assumes that you know who these guys were, and most likely, if you were an Israelite, you would have known your history. Like, oh right, Hophni and Phineas, because every Israelite would have remembered their how, how they had died in battle, and when the Ark was captured, we'll hear, we'll hear that story soon. But this is this is. Something that, oh, right, in those days. Now, it's worth noting that the book of Judges ended with a story about a different Phineas. The first Phineas. Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Judges ends, and, if, and then in, Samuel picks up the story next. So if you have the Phineas at the end of Judges, and then you have a Phineas at the beginning of Samuel... You're supposed to see a connection, but that's not, that's, that's not saying that this, is, that this Phineas is a good guy. But you're like, wait, Phineas? I know that name. This is a very different Phineas. But when it says that, that Elkanah offered sacrifices, uh, when the scriptures talk about sacrifice, this, uh, there are all sorts of offerings, but usually the word sacrifice refers in particular to the peace offering. This is the offering where the worshipers also partake of the meat. And so Elkanah would give portions to Peninnah and her sons and daughters and to Hannah. Now, you might, your Bible might have a footnote pointing out that there are some textual variants here. Some say that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her. Others say that although he loved her, he only gave her one portion because she was childless. Uh, Either way, the point is that he loved her in spite of the fact that, he was, that she was childless and also that the, the portion, the difference in portions, however you interpret that, the difference in portions between what Hannah gets and what Panina gets is a, an object of conflict between the women. And quite frankly, whichever way you translate it, it speaks well of him because it would have been easy to focus his affection on the one who gave him children. But part of what you're supposed to see here is Elkanah is a man like Jacob. He loves his barren wife. He's not just like, oh, I, I love the one who gives me kids. He, he, he remembers the barren. In this respect, he's like God. That's why we started with Psalm 113 and in the, in the call to worship. Because... God remembers the barren woman and gives her a home. Elkanah is not capable of uh, of giving her children, or more more precisely, he uh, obviously he is capable in one sense. Penina, Penina has lots of kids. We might nowadays say, "Oh, go go to a, a uh, sort of uh, those places where they help you fertility treatment," and i "Ah, here we can we can we can take care of this," but. As they go up year by year to the tabernacle at Shiloh, these unequal portions are a reminder of Hannah's barrenness. And one year, Hannah finally breaks down and weeps and she won't eat. Now, nowadays we think about that in terms of, oh, we're concerned about her health and all that. But what is it that she's not eating She's not partaking of the peace offering. She feels in this conflict as though she does not have peace with God. There is something fundamentally wrong here. And her husband, as a well-meaning fellow, says, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? In the ancient world, ten sons would be the guarantee that you will be cared for in your old age Uh, if you have ten sons it's sure uh, half of them might die before they reach adulthood but at least five of them will most likely make it to adulthood you'll have someone to care for you and Elkanah is saying I will care for you am I not more to you than ten sons it's an emphatic declaration of love but it has to also ring hollow in her ears because the promise was the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The barren woman is a forgotten woman. She has no future. If her husband dies, then her impoverished old age is but a symbol of what would happen to the human race if the promised seed is never born. If the promised seed never comes, then every barren woman is a signal of the the end of humanity. Because if all women become barren. We're done for. Now it's all very good to profess your love for your barren wife. And Elkanah does well to do so. But this barrenness is said to be the Lord's doing. He has closed her womb. And. In one sense, the problem isn't, if you think about this from a fertility standpoint, it's probably not Elkanah because actually he's having no difficulty getting Panina pregnant. So what? what's wrong with Hannah? And the text is clear. God has closed her womb. He has, he has a plan and a purpose. And verse 9 tells us that after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Notice, they had eaten and drunk, but Hannah could not eat. Her portion of the meat of the peace offering sat on the table untouched. And there are times when you want to be alone, when you need to be alone and pray to God out of the grief of your heart. And where do you go in such times? Hannah knows where to go. She goes to the door of the temple of the Lord. I don't know if anybody has been scratching their heads over the last few minutes as I, as I keep saying temple after reading temple because there's no temple. We're in Shiloh. The temple hasn't been built yet. There's only the, the tabernacle and quite frankly, the, 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 the tent in a sense, functions as Israel's temple. Israel's temple is as unsettled as Israel itself. These opening two chapters of Samuel will talk about the temple and will talk about the king. When there was no temple and there was no king. Because God's purpose in this story, and this is where the author of Samuel is clearly telling us, The reason why I'm telling you this story is because you should see how the temple and the king are connected in in my story. Israel had dwelt in the land for hundreds of years, but they weren't really settled. Samuel will be the one who will lead the movement toward the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that is foreshadowed in the reference to the temple of Yahweh in verse 9. And so in her distress and sorrow, she comes to the temple. Our author is telling us, it may have only been a tent, but it is the temple. It is the place where earth and heaven meet. It is the place where God hears the prayer of his people. And that's why they come. That's why Hannah comes. Long before Solomon had asked God to hear the prayers made toward that place, God was drawing his people toward himself in the tabernacle. The faithful would come to the house of the Lord to pray and to make their vows to him. As we went through the book of Leviticus recently, we saw that the heart of the book of Leviticus is focused on chapter 16, the day of atonement, the day when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. He would ascend the hill of the Lord and enter God's holy place on behalf of the people. And this theme of the barren woman in connection with the temple is connected to what we saw in Leviticus in the central central chapters. Because Leviticus 12 to 15 showed us this focus on the clean and the unclean. And we saw an awful lot about menstruation, childbirth, and sexual relations. And then after chapter 16, in chapters 17 to 22, the focus was on the holy and the profane. And again, an awful lot about sexual relations in chapters 18, 19, 20 and, 20, and 21. God was teaching his people about the connection between worship and sexual faithfulness. It's, it's a theme the prophets will come up, come back with over and over again when they show how idolatry is spiritual adultery. If idolatry is spiritual adultery, then What is that telling us about true worship? True worship is an intimacy with God deeper than human sexual relations. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Remember, they were naked and unashamed. And he gave them the Garden of Eden as the holy place where they could dwell with God, walk with God. The Garden Sanctuary, the place where they dwelt with God and walked with God, was also the place where they were to be fruitful and multiply. And in Leviticus, God showed Israel a picture of how truth, goodness, and beauty could be restored and rebuilt at the tabernacle. And now here in 1 Samuel, we see two opposed visions of what happened. Because we'll hear next time about my sons who turned to perversity and lust. But here tonight, we see Hannah with the eyes of faith, seeing that the sanctuary is indeed the place where wombs are renewed. Indeed, there will be another one, Zechariah, who will be praying at the temple with the offering of incense. And as I've often said, Zechariah and and Elizabeth, they are so far past the age of childbirth, it's safe to say he's not praying. For a child that day. But when the angel says. Your prayers have been answered. It's the prayers for the restoration. Of the kingdom of God. Which will come through this child. Who I'm sure they had prayed for. Long before. But now God is saying. This is the place. Where wombs are renewed. This is the place where fruitfulness. Is restored. And so she's. So now Hannah comes to the tabernacle. She comes to the temple and is deeply distressed and she prays to the Lord and weeps bitterly and she vowed a vow. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Uh, Number six speaks of the Nazarite vow, a a vow of special service to the Lord. And Hannah takes this vow to the Lord on behalf of her son and devotes him to the service of the Lord. Now, in our kind of individualistic age, that sounds a little over the top. How could a mother make a promise on behalf of her son? Now, in one sense, she can't. She cannot promise that he will be faithful in his performance of the vow... That's up to him. Will he honor it as he gets older? But she can promise that she will give him to the Lord. It is then up to the Lord to do with him as the Lord pleases. Now, what do we make of vows like this? Obviously, speaking, this is the word of the Lord, so we're not going to say, oh, Hannah was wrong and foolish for making this vow. But it's worth reflecting on this for ourselves in terms of are there times when we should make vows of a similar sort? My answer is not very often. You'll notice that in Scripture, this sort of thing doesn't happen very often. So it may very well be that in your lifetime, you will never find yourself in a case where you should make a vow of this sort. It's sort of like when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all that he has, give to the poor, and follow me. That doesn't mean that everybody should sell everything they have, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. It also doesn't mean that nobody should ever do that. It just means you need to think think and pray and reflect on what is God calling you to do in the situation you're in get, getting wise counsel I mean, here she is at the temple, she'll be talking with the priest here shortly, yeah, so this is and it's also worth noting that in Numbers uh, this vow, you know, her her husband could nullify it in the day that he hears of it and so and as a wise man he doesn't But, um, but it's worth noting. And so reflect on what is Hannah doing here. Well, she understands her own heart. She sees I mean she has been provoked by her sister-wife and is is beside herself. She also seems to recognize yes, I really want a child, but she desires first to please the Lord. She knows the promises that the promised seed will come. She'll sing that in chapter 2. And so she desires to bear a son. And yet, she is willing to relinquish all the social and material benefits of having a son. Because as much as I want a son who will take care of me in my old age, she says, no, I want a son who will serve the Lord his God. And so, okay, fine. Maybe I will never get what I want. But can I at least get what you want, O Lord? See, when our vows are rightly ordered, it's not really about getting what I want, but about seeking first the kingdom of God. Now, notice there is utter silence on God's part. He has not spoken. He has not called her to do this. Vows are entirely voluntary. You never have to take one. But if you do, then you are bound to fulfill them. And so she's continuing her prayer before the Lord. And and Eli, the high priest, sees her and says that she's speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Uh, Eli is an interesting character. We'll, we'll learn a fair amount about him in the next few weeks. He's the high priest, and as such, he will bless God's people, but he's not portrayed as having a whole lot of spiritual insight. He judges Hannah rather severely. He sees her lips moving and assumes that she is drunk, I fear we are rather prone to be like Eli. We are quick to assume that we know the attitudes of others and judge them according to our assumption of what their situation is. But notice how Hannah responds. Hannah does not get offended. She's not sort of quick to, oh, how dare you accuse me of that. No, she, She is a woman of strength and integrity, even in her distress, in her anguish. And so she answers him clearly and plainly, and with great respect. He is the Lord's high priest, after all. No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. When someone has misjudged you, and this is hard, I struggle with this myself, but when someone has misjudged you, speak the truth in love. She speaks with humility and yet with confidence. She honors him as the high priest, refers to him as my Lord and herself as your servant. And yet she rebukes him for his error. (laughs) Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. The phrase there is, as a daughter of Belial, a daughter of worthlessness. In the next chapter we'll hear that Eli's sons were sons of Belial, sons of worthlessness, worthless men. Hannah says she is not like them. Now, we'll also hear in the next chapter that Eli's sons were known to lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting and that Eli was bothered by this. And perhaps that gives us eyes to see what's going on in this little interchange when he sees what appears to him to be a drunk woman at the tent of meeting perhaps he wants to protect Hannah or perhaps he's afraid she's looking for his sons knowing what they're like but through all this misunderstanding and through all this misery that they're both going through the Lord God is at work Indeed, now the Lord God himself speaks through the mouth of bumbling Eli the priest. He gets this right. He answered, Shalom, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Eli may not have had the faintest idea of what he said, but as the high priest, he was commanded to bless the faithful, and in this blessing, Hannah finds contentment. She does not know what God will do. But God has given her peace. Shalom. Through the benediction of Eli. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. She ate. She partook of the peace offering. She went back to that portion of meat that was sitting at her place at the table. And she partook. Because whether or not she ever bore a son, that wasn't the point. She had peace with God. She knew that God had heard her prayer. She doesn't yet know the answer. But she has received God's blessing. And so she departs in peace. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the following year, Elkanah went up to the house of the Lord, but this time Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah understood. Numbers 30 says he had the right in the day that he hears the vow to nullify it, but he doesn't. He says instead, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. What a guy. The son of the wife that he loves will be the one son that he doesn't get to raise. And he's okay with that. He understood a vow is a vow, and he gets his wife. He values her word. We're not really given any clue as to what's going through his head. But what you see is here's a man who hears his wife and understands at whatever level, this is something important to her, and so it's important to me. As a righteous and faithful man, he saw that his wife's vow was from the Lord. And so, may the Lord establish his word seems to suggest that Elkanah sees some significance in this child residing in the presence of the Lord that he understands at whatever level he can at this point that this is what God is doing in their lives, in the lives of the people of of God. And so when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull Some think it might even be three bulls, but either way, uh, whether it's a three-year-old bull or three bulls, this is a really expensive offering. Bulls aren't cheap. And an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. They slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. Ordinarily, the redemption of the firstborn would be with a monetary payment, along with the purification sacrifices of Leviticus 12. God had told Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. But Samuel was not just the firstborn of Hannah, she is also the child of a vow, And so they bring a bull, flour, and wine as a thank offering for the fulfillment of the vow, as Leviticus 7 required. And so having slaughtered the bull, consecrating Samuel to the Lord's service, Elkanah and Hannah present Samuel to Eli. And Hannah says... Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted my, my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, how does an Ephraimite become a priest? Because he is now adopted by the high priest. He's now a Levite. Practically speaking, he is now the son of the high priest, and so therefore, he is the. Uh, that's that's that is what that is what this whole little ceremony is doing. He is now a son of Aaron, as it were. But what did it take for Hannah to leave her firstborn son behind? What, what did it cost for Hannah to? Fulfill her vow. She had longed to bring a son into the world, and having done so, she will now hand over that son to another. Why did Hannah do this? Because she had put to death the desires of her flesh, and she was walking by the Spirit. Her desire to be a mother now plays second fiddle to her desire to see the glory of the kingdom of God. And so many centuries later, the priest Zechariah was offering incense at the temple when his barren wife conceived and bore a son. John would be the one to baptize Jesus, just as Samuel was the one who anointed David. The song of Zechariah, the song of Mary, both resonate with Hannah's song because it is at the temple where humanity can once again ascend the hill of the Lord in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the one who offered Himself as that burnt offering, as we saw in Leviticus, what's called the ascension offering, that in the smoke of the of the sacrifice, in the smoke of the sacrifice, the animal is transformed from flesh and blood to this smoke that ascends before the, before the Lord, and as that ascension offering rises to God. That's what Jesus did on our behalf. He offered himself as the Ascension offering. And then, I know, I know, all you science fiction fans are going, ooh, 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 and then the, you know, the smoke is like a teleporter. And then he, then he rematerializes in the heaven. No, no, he, you know, he died and was raised from the dead in the self-same body and ascended into heaven. But, that's, but, the, but all those science fiction movies, you know, all that sort of teleport, teleportation stuff, they're trying to get a glimpse of what the real thing is. The real thing is that Jesus was came back. You know, this is resurrection. I mean, sorry, Star Trek fans will have too much fun with that, but I'll let you go down that path if you're a Star Trek fan. There's some fun things you can think about like that. But it's at the temple where our humanity again ascends the hill of the Lord as we are joined to the life of of Jesus as we now ascend into the presence of our heavenly father and come to him in the heavenly holy of holies where the temple the heavenly temple is the place where our heavenly king sits enthroned at the right hand of the father so let's ask him to continue his work thank you father for your great mercy to us in jesus thank you because you have seated your son our lord jesus at your right hand that you have not left us to to perish in our sin and misery you have not you have not dealt with us as our sins deserved that you have you have shown your favor and you have given your blessing because you have loved us with an everlasting love and you have seated us in the heavenly places in Jesus your son because you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand and you have promised that you will continue to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight that we might be conformed more and more to the likeness of your son. O Lord our God, have mercy on us. Help us as we walk before you to trust your promises, to believe what you have said, that we might hear your voice and have confidence that you will continue the work that you have begun. Lord, help us like Hannah to seek first your kingdom even at the expense of our own kingdoms that we might recognize that our kingdoms aren't worth anything compared to yours so help us lord to to live as those who belong to jesus to 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 vow when we need to vow and to to walk humbly trusting you in every day knowing that you will, con- you will continue this work in us. Lord, help us in our weakness and affliction. Help those, Lord, who are, who are grieving and anxious and afraid. Help each of us to trust your promises and to, to hear your voice. May your word speak into our darkness. May your word speak into our fearfulness. May your light shine and your comfort renew and refresh us. And Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon those who are sick and afflicted. Have mercy upon Gwen as she recovers from her surgery and as she bring, bring healing to her body and comfort to her heart. Have mercy, Lord, upon, upon all those who, who struggle with depression and anxiety and, and bring them comfort in the midst of their afflictions. Lord, have mercy upon all those who, who are dealing with, with challenging situations at, at work or at home and may may you give wisdom in the midst of trial forgive us lord for our sins and and help us to see our sin truly and clearly against you that we might confess it and turn from it to you help us lord to forgive one another as you have forgiven us that we might show forth the love of christ to those around us that we might not we might not be forgetful that we might not turn away but we might remember all of your promises that you have made to us in Christ Jesus, your Son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.